0: Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. So great to be able to see all of you this morning. A special welcome to West Campus and South Campus and Converge and a special hello to the hive that's out there and all of you that are joining and streaming us live for this particular service. Thank you. We are glad that you are here. You know, some years ago in another time and in another place, this has been many years ago now, Patty and I were attending a Christmas open house at a friend's house. And uh, this was a very nice uh, open house. There were plenty of goodies and snacks that were kind of laid around the house. You know, you had peanuts and you had candies and you had hard candies, little dishes around. It was a wonderful evening. You kind of grazed yourself through the evening, just kind of picking up things hither and yon. We had a delightful time. We were standing on, in line to be able to go outside the door, you know, say goodbye to the host and the hostess as we were leaving. And I noticed a, what appeared to be some lemon drops that were over on the little, the little uh, uh, entry table in the foyer. Well, the gentleman in front of me, his name was Bob. Uh, Bob picked up one of those little lemon drops and popped it in his mouth and he said goodbye to the, the, the host and the hostess and disappeared in the evening. Uh, We, Patty and I, said our goodbyes to the host and the hostess, and as we were walking out to the car, I noticed that Patty was giggling. I said, what are you giggling about? She said, well, did you notice that Bob picked up one of those things that looked like a lemon drop there on the foyer table on the way out? I said, yeah, I did. It looked really good. I almost grabbed one myself. She said, they were potpourri. (laughs) Poor Bob. Poor Bob had dropped a de- wax deodorant ball <laughs> into his mouth. I can see poor Bob trying to figure out what happened. He's trying to get the wax out of his teeth, you know, later on. Bob was deceived. He wasn't deceived maliciously, but uh, he was deceived into thinking that those nice little yellow balls there were actually you know, lemon drops. Uh, something that looked good, but it was not what it appeared be. You know, we live in a world that's full of deceivers and scammers and those people that are trying to take advantage of us. We hear about it all the time. Those who are elderly individuals that uh, lose their life savings or through a phone scam or through a building scam or some other scam. You think you're making a transaction for one particular product or another and you get something else that's completely different. You've been Taken advantage of, you've been deceived, you've been cheated. You know, one of the best examples that we have in the scriptures about that is Jacob. I mean, Jacob, uh, the schemer himself, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, his name even means heel catcher or cheater or defrauder or deceiver. And you remember that at an early age, Jacob cheated his brother out of his out of his birthright. And later on, Jacob deceives his father and takes advantage of Isaac's poor eyesight and dresses himself up and puts hair on his, on his arms to even smell like Esau to try to steal. And he does. He steals his, the firstborn blessing from, from uh, Esau once again. Deception's everywhere. But Jesus does not want you to be deceived in your spiritual life. He doesn't want you to be deceived in your spiritual journey as to where you're going. Jesus gives us warning about two groups of individuals that will try to deceive you to lead you away from that narrow path of life. And be no, make no mistake about it as we read this passage, that it is a warning. It's kind of the same kind of warning that we would give to our children as We say, don't go into the street or don't put your finger in the electrical socket. I mean, it's a warning because we know what's something dangerous and we're trying to protect our children from that danger. And so Jesus gives us a warning about two groups of people. What are those two groups? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, verses 15 through 23. And I wanna read this whole passage and then we're going to come back. But I think reading it, you get the gravity of what Jesus is talking about. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mi- mighty works in your name? And then I, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." In the previous verses, in verse 13 and 14, Jesus likens the entrance into the kingdom as going through between two gates. And basically what he says is he declares that few will find the gate to life and righteousness. There's no ignoring these words. There's been many attempts to try to soften the words, but you can't ignore what Jesus is saying is here. That the way to life is indeed narrow. There's only one Savior that's offered to the world. And Jesus says in in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But there are two groups now that Jesus says that can lead you away from that narrow way to life. And the first one is in verses 15 through 20, where Jesus says that false teachers can lead you away from that narrow way of life. They're part of the cause for few finding that narrow way to life. And Jesus focuses initially on on a couple of characteristics of these false teachers. And first off is the deception that they have. In verse 15, he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing. They come to you in sheep's clothing. You know, the bold, open, heretical lie is probably not the concern here. Not many are are likely to be taken in or duped by the crazy heretic. The church is usually responded pretty well to the full-fledged frontal assaults by other groups that are trying to destroy us. I mean, what's easier and more difficult to to observe? Is it more difficult to observe the teacher of the Church of Satan that cuts up chickens Or the teacher that holds up the Bible, talks about the Bible, wears the nice suit, but never teaches that Jesus is the only way to be able to get right with God. See, Jesus has in mind here the sort of attack that kind of sneaks in secretly. It's kind of the ethical Trojan horse, so to speak. The most dangerous and deceptive individuals that come into our, our body often gain entry through all the trappings of looking holy. I mean, they come clothed with the right garments, they have all of the right academic credentials, they have the theological vocabulary, they come in and with that warm and inviting personality that's really hard to dismiss. And these are not the dogs and the swine of chapter seven, verse six, which are obnoxious and offensive. Those are easy to dismiss. These false teachers come in, rarely advertise themselves as being hostile or a threat, but rather somebody that you would really want to embrace. In some ways, they are somewhat grooming their potential victims into trusting them and portraying that they have a better life solution or a better understanding to all of your problems. They come in sheep's clothing, but their danger is is that they are ravenous as wolves in verse 15. They may come, but inwardly they're ravenous as wolves. And I'm sure that that resonated with the audience that Jesus was talking to. As many out there were shepherds, they realized the danger of the wolves. Their motive is ultimately self-serving. They want to puff themselves up. Paul later reinforces Jesus' warning as he as he's saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, where he says, you know, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, be alert. Jesus also says that false teachers will be identified by their fruit. By their fruit. And notice in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruit. And then skip down to verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruit. It kind of brackets the section. Fruit really represents the plant or the, or the person that, that it produces. It's what other people see that leads them to conclude that there was something about the identity of the tree or the plant that produced it. In other words, if I eat an apple, I can pretty well be assured that it came from an apple tree. If I eat an orange, I assume that it came from an orange tree. I can't assume that an apple came from an orange tree. Apples come from apple trees and oranges come from orange trees. fruit really identifies the source. and what Usually the false motives here of the prophets of self-seeking will eventually be revealed. They're not going to be able to remain hidden for some time. Eventually they, they, you realize that you're not really eating the right fruit. You recognize that the source of this particular fruit that we see is not from the source of of Jesus Christ Jesus says that the disciples will be able to recognize the false teachers by their fruit first John 4 1 says beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God for many false prophets have gone into the world in other words we're going to recognize these individuals by their words and also their deeds with regard to their doctrine I mean, misleading teachers are going to point to the wide and open path. Not the narrow path, the wide and open path. They're, so to speak, those midway hawkers that say it's come this way, very appealing to look good, but they're deceptive. Paul warns about the the false prophets in Galatians 1, who's preaching a false gospel. And he says that if anybody comes and preaches a gospel that's Not the gospel that we preach to you should be accursed. It's a lot of times not what the false prophet does say. But you also have to pay attention to what they don't say. That's what's going to get you into trouble. A lot of the half-truths, the use of the vocabulary, but using a different definition for the vocabulary. Their preaching is intentionally vague, overly general. The sin is not really denied, it's just de-emphasized. Their doctrine becomes misleading. But we also see that their deeds, in regard to their deeds, their true motivation is self-interest and pride. That's what's motivating them to be deceptive. Given enough time, we're going to really be able to see the fruits of where their loyalty really lies whether or not it lies with Christ or whether or not it lies with themselves. And oftentimes it's money or prestige or pride coming up with that novel idea that stokes the fire for their inflated ego and importance. Jesus' point is simply making that the false teachers typically do what is bad and that the good people who faithfully follow the Christ typically do what is is good you're going to know them by their fruits one way of being able to detect that is just by the way that they live I mean are they constantly soliciting money for their own personal comfort they usually talk a good talk but then typically do what they want to do on their own You see, the words and the works of the false teacher will eventually reveal their character. In the end, it says in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The end is the fire. Harsh. Harsh. False teachers can lead you astray from the narrow way to life, but there's a second group that can lead you astray as well. False teachers are going to produce false followers and in verses 21 through 23 we see that false followers can lead you to trust in the wrong way to life you see the the wrong way to life is trying to earn salvation by works and these false followers begin to elevate their own works he says in verse 21 he says not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus will enter into the kingdom of God you say, whoa. Well, we're not t- being told here that works justify or earn entrance into heaven. Far be it. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. But then verse 10 reads, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works flow out of our relationship and our love for Christ. But notice that Jesus gives us a couple of characteristics about these false followers. Notice that they're pretty fervent and they're very zealous. I mean, Lord, Lord, they're not ashamed to claim Christ. But just because someone claims Jesus Christ as their Lord doesn't mean that he is Jesus Christ, their Lord. You know, I can claim that I'm a good golfer. That doesn't mean that I am a good golfer, and I'm not. You can say that you love your Bible, but that does not mean that you're reading it. You see, there's a big difference between saying something and actually doing something. Many claim to be Christians, but they're deceived. They're relying upon their own good works to be able to get them to heaven. This should maybe cause us to just pause here for a little bit, for a little bit of introspection. Am I I trying to earn my way to heaven? Is it by trying to be good enough, by trying to please people, or live up to a certain set of rules? Notice that they say that all the works that they did were, were were in your name. They probably believed that they were going to heaven just because they were doing all of these good works and they were doing them in the name of Jesus. I'm not doing any bad things. I'm, I'm really a good person. But they're relying upon their works and not faith in Jesus Christ. And I think many people deal with holy things on a daily basis, yet fail to have a personal relationship with, with Jesus Christ. They're deceived. You say, well, how did they get deceived? You know, it's easy to follow the wide path. It's easy to follow the wide path and get lured into the spectacular rather than the desire to grow spiritually. It's easy to look for the immediate results, the spectacular results, and then get lured into the The thinking that that's the center of true religion. We begin to rationalize and say, look, the success indices are soaring. Surely God must be blessing here. The results then become more important than following Christ. Be deceiving. Just as some church member could maybe. Talk themselves into believing that their cause is more important than their ethics. So these religious extroverts could convince themselves that their success oriented spectacular victories are more important than their humble dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their sanctification. But the ultimate test is whether or not the, the follower is going to be obedient to the will of the Father. Look at verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but, 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 contrast, but, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, false followers are going to follow in works. The real follower is going to be obedient out of love. Biblical obedience to God means to trust and hear and submit and surrender to God and his word. It's the total response that we give when the one true God has revealed himself to us. We live out that life in obedience out of the love that has been shown to us. We live out that love love in life around us. The false followers' obedience to the word of God is ultimately neglected. Why? Well, because they're looking out for their own self interest Failure to bow before divine law. Failure to to bow before ultimately the will of God which is faith in Jesus Christ renders them practitioners of lawlessness as it says here. What's the will of the Father? The will of the Father goes back to chapter 5. Talks about poverty of spirit mourning for sin, meekness, a hunger for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, self-sacrificial love for one's enemies. They're all heart issues. Jesus is dealing and looking for the heart of change. That's what it's looking for. You'll see a different type of person than this spectacular what you're going to see is somebody with humility and love and purity of heart. That's what you're going to see. Those who have the greatest and spectacular ministries are not necessarily the ones that are going to bring the and smile to God. As important as those ministries might be, nothing can compare with the purity of heart and humility and a, a soul that craves to be filled with the righteousness of Christ. how can they claim the mighty deeds that they did? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but whatever it was of those people looking for an outward fantastic ministries, they all proved to be lawlessness. You see, to do things in the name of Jesus without the motive of Jesus is lawlessness. What then are the essential characteristics of the follower of Jesus Christ? Well, it's obedience. Obedience to the word of God. Jesus is in essence here saying, you know, I don't care about your good works of power if there's no purity in your heart. I don't care about all those works if they flow out of a heart of self-serving pride. I've never known you. You're strangers to me all of your activity, all of your deeds that you have paraded before others as righteousness are nothing but lawlessness. Jesus knows the true condition of your heart. He knows the true condition of your heart. John Wesley, who was a theologian, evangelist, leader of the Methodist uh, movement, Listen to his words that were written from his journal from May 24th, 1738. So John Wesley at this time was 35 years old. Listen to what he has to say. As a young boy in the family of a clergyman, I had been carefully taught that salvation could only be obtained by keeping all the commandments of God I hoped to be saved by not being so bad as other people, having a certain kind of religion, reading the Bible, going to church, saying my prayers. I had no doubt that I was a good Christian. I was eventually ordained as a minister and lived very strictly. I omitted no sort of self-denial but this brought me no peace with God. Let me pause here and just make an insert. You know, relying upon works will never bring you peace because you never know when you've done enough. And he had no peace with God. Pick him back up. I went as a chaplain to the American colonies and came under the influence of a Moravian Christian, I'm going to return to England in that January. And I realized that what I was lacking was faith in and through Christ. I was resolved to renounce all dependence upon my own works or righteousness and instead turn to a saving faith, a full reliance on the blood of Christ shed for me. I finally knew I had been deceived. And was converted when my heart was strangely warmed within, and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins. Amen. Amen. You know, false teachers are going to produce false followers that will try to lead you away from the narrow way of life. And Jesus says here, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The question then we must ask is, do you have assurance of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you entered by the narrow gate? That's where it all begins. You can know for sure by just believing in him and him alone as the only way to be able to get right with God. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Should not perish, be thrown into the fire, but have eternal life. And transfer your trust from your works and trying to be a good person and doing all of the right things. Transfer your trust from that, even if you've been doing them in the name of the Lord. Transfer your trust from that to what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. Believe in Him. Jesus died for your sins and he arose from the dead. He says, believe in him is the only way to be able to get right. Follow Jesus, not the false teachers. And secondly, cultivate an obedient heart which springs forth out of a heart for the love for the Savior. A true follower will be identified by their obedience to the will of the Father. Because of what Jesus has done For us, out of that, out of a heart of love, we're able to love one another. Not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And obedience is a key concept here. Don't miss this. Let me just pause here for just a second. Don't miss this. In 7.12, where he talks about the golden rule, he says, Whatever you do, wish for others, do also for them. verse 21, he says, the one who enters the kingdom, the one who does the will of my Father. Later, and you say, well, what in the world is the will of my Father? In Matthew chapter 22, later on, uh, a lawyer comes up and asks Jesus, he says, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest law? And Jesus answers, he says in verses 20, 20, chapter 22, verse 36, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend the, all the law and the prophets. And then later, that concept of obedience that's introduced here gets further fleshed out, I believe, in chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew. Matthew. The very next chapters, as Jesus goes forth, he authenticates what he's doing by calming the sea, casts out demons, he heals the diseases, he raises the dead. But don't miss the implication. Don't miss the implication. All the way through chapters eight and nine, nature obeys, demons obey, disease and death obey. The implication is, is what about you? Are you going to obey? decide that you're going to want to do God's way his way then take the initiative to apply God's word into your life Jesus in the last supper in John chapter 13 he says a new commandment that I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you that you love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have one love for one another. The fruit that we see in the false disciples, we see fruit in the true disciples by being obedient to being loving. Jesus is looking for a heart that flows out of a love for the Savior that loves one another. That's how we're going to know that true follower of Jesus Christ. False teachers are going to produce false followers who will try to lead you away. True followers will be obedient and love one another. And I've got to say that obedience to God's word, obedience to God's word unleashes God's blessing. Let me have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reality of your word. Thank you that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to penetrate deeply. It's able to expose our innermost thoughts and our innermost desires. I pray, Lord, that we would allow Scripture to penetrate our lives, that we would take the initiative to knead your word into our lives as a response out of the love that we have for, for you. Mold us, shape us, conform us to your image, that the world would be able to see that we are truly your disciples by the way that we love one another. The fruit of believers is love. We just submit ourselves into your care. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.